American Craftsman Podcast is sponsored by Bits and Bits. In their shop in Oregon, Bits and Bits manufactures a wide range of spiral router bits from one eighth inch shank to half inch shank, from one thirty second inch cutting diameter to half inch cutting diameter. They make upcut, downcut, compression bits, and more. They're used in router tables, handheld routers, and CNC machines, from hobbyists to production shops. They coat their bits in a Astro coating, proprietary nano coating designed to keep the bit running cooler, prolonging the sharpness of the cutting edge. They're the only factory authorized dealer to Astro coat white side router bits. Their expanding line of white side bits ranges from spiral flush trim bits to roundovers, chamfers, rabbiting bits, and more. They're a festival dealer stocking mainly router and domino related accessories and consumables. You can check them out at bitsbits.com and use our coupon code American Craftsman to save yourself 15%. And we're back, back from the road. I'm back from uh, starting this over again because we've been having some microphone malfunctions. Yeah, it was quite an adventure this past week. Yeah. I mean, starting Friday, really. Last Friday. Yeah, which is, uh, that was what, the last podcast episode we yes, recorded? Yes, yeah. it was It was alive from the road on the way up to Closter, Closter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All done with the install. Beams, pulse bar, uh, banquette, bench, and floating shelves. I, uh, and a section of that upholstery guy didn't finish, but yeah, yeah, I forgot all about that. That's right. <laughs> we built the table for it and everything. Yeah, that, that's just a distant memory. I know, man. Yeah, we're beat. Taking it easy today, doing the podcast. Probably we'll spend tomorrow just getting ourselves Cleaning reset. Up. Yeah, we got some <laughs> prefin plywood coming to wrap up the. Uh, the next job. Maybe we can get Keith to come take that bench away. Yeah. And store our uh, bakers. <laughs> yeah. I put in another price request on another shed, a small shed. Just something that would be like the bare minimum to see. Right. Just a storage solution. Yeah. It was like an 8 by 8, 16 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Something that we could fit. Anywhere. The bakers, the ladders, that kind of shit. Just yeah. the little stuff. But, um... So, yeah, this week we're on to the modern era of furniture. And it's curious that this is the last major period as defined by those who define such things mm-hmm. uh, of American furniture. Yeah. Maybe we can add, uh, you know, we might have to add our own sections on here mm-hmm. at the end because uh, this is what, 42, 3, 4, 5. So this will take us to episode 45. Yeah, we need seven we need more. We need seven more, yeah. To go a full year's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is 70 years old now, Mod- the modern era. Yeah. I mean, the, the peak of the modern era. Um, and the, if I remember correctly, the period that preceded this was just a, a rehash of Traditional revival. Yeah. Traditional revival was right. It was, so we, uh, are we saying that we haven't come up with anything new in a <laughs> 90 years? I guess. <laughs> we were just talking about the design aesthetic and everything like that, how it's really just sort of, you know, kind of you go for what you know. Yeah. Anything goes nowadays. 
It's like rock and roll. Nothing's been new since the 50s. That's right. Same three chords. Yep. Um, so, um, I if I remember, I, I can't can't remember the, all of the, there's about 26 or 28 pages of notes here. Um, there's probably a mention of um, Danish modern, but we're going to start with mid-century modern, which um, is a term most people are familiar with nowadays. Yeah. I mean, even the lay person is oh, yeah. familiar with that term. It's probably the um, the hottest design aesthetic of the of the moment i'd say that's cool i mean i i kind of lean towards it if i have to pick one yeah um so it, it's an american design movement in interior product graphic design architecture and in urban development that was popular from roughly 1945 to 1969 uh in uh, post-world war ii america mm-hmm. um it was the term was used as early as the mid fifties, uh, but didn't really become, uh, you know, uh, what would you call it? Like a, a real, um, known thing. Like, you know, it's funny how you, you trace back these things like to the mention of it and then where it becomes sort of like a public consciousness sort of thing. It wasn't in the canon. Right. Right. Um, an author named Kara Greenberg wrote a book in 1984. So, I mean, it's, you know, 30-some-odd years later, titled uh, Mid-Century Modern Furniture of the 50s. Hmm. I'm going to pick that up. Yeah, uh, that's true. I mean, we've we've uh, enlarged our library yeah. by doing this podcast. So it's it's now recognized, of course, by scholars and museums worldwide as a significant design movement. Um, uh, in doing this research, I constantly found it mid-century modern, uh, reduced to just the three letters, MCM. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it's probably redundant to say, but it's an aesthetic that's modern in style and construction mm-hmm. aligns with the modernist movement of that period, uh, typically characterized by clean, simple lines honest use of materials, and it generally doesn't include decorative embellishments. Um, so on the surface, it sounds like some of the other. Right. Um, like arts and crafts, you know. Arts and crafts, yeah. Shaker, just, you yeah. know, even though it doesn't look like Shaker to, for the most part, it, it they bear similar descriptives. Yep. Um. Now, this modern and postmodern period was a stark departure from the English and French influence and the periods of the past centuries. Uh, And instead, this period relied heavily on Asian, which we see, influences, and some African influences. Hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't either. Um, Well, you know, we'll see if we can pick through once we get into the the photo op period of the broadcast. Yeah. and again, while there's some debate over the exact origin, most can agree that this style dates back to the mid-30s through the mid-60s. And it was a term coined by Kara uh, Greenberg in her book, Mid-Century Modern Furniture of the 1950s. Um, so 
it's been with us now for 60, 70 years, and it's still holding its own, maybe more so than than most. Yeah, I mean, we uh, when we were just at Jim Jamal's, the upholsterer up in Jersey City, he's got a guy down the block from him that he does work for, and they go to um, homes in, uh, would it be Holland? That's, yeah. And, um... Or Denmark is Denmark? Danish. I, I don't know. It's, we always mess this up. <laughs> they go to to these Danish homes. That's what I just should have said. So I'm yeah. like an idiot. And you know, where like uh, these pretty much old people live, and they buy the old furniture, mm-hmm. and they bring it back here, and they they fix it up if it needs fixed up, and they sell it, and and they're like raking in the dough. Yeah, I had forgotten all about that till you said that. Mm-hmm. That's. Yeah, that's that's quite a cool little business model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were actually I saw because I follow them on Instagram now. They were over over there checking out the Tour de France, and then th- they're spending the whole week, you know, buying more furniture. Wow, wow, um, I love that. Uh, so as I uh, alluded to, the mid-century modern style was high, highly influenced by Danish modernism. <clears throat> And the German style and school of design, Bauhaus, mm-hmm. which we touched on a few uh, series back. Uh, with the changes that World War II brought to Germany, America subtly, suddenly found itself with immigrants that were both trained and practiced in this style. Uh, this combined with the baby boom, you know those boomers, and the urgent need for housing with modern furniture, birthed the new era of technological advances and exploration of new material in design. The atomic Uh, age. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I should, you know what I should have done is had some photos of the cars and stuff like that, that came out in the fifties just as an aside, because I mean, it was all part and parcel of, of one thing. Like you say, the atomic age, the space age, it's funny, the cars kind of didn't follow the same design ideology as the furniture. Yeah. You know, much more overstated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's putting it gently. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could have gotten some great pictures of the tail fins mm-hmm. and wings and everything like that. Even just the most basics, like a you know, Chevy Bel Air, mm-hmm. like that's car's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, by today's standards, it sure is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this period also introduced furniture built from a number of mass-produced materials, such as molded plywood, metals, and plastics. Uh, materials like glass, metal, and fiberglass were, were commonplace. And uh, many became the basis for iconic furniture designs and uh, by designers such as Charles and Ray Eames. Mm-hmm. George Nelson, uh, a name that I'm not familiar with. Uh, Herman Miller, we've all we all seen the Miller stuff. Arne Jacobson, and uh, I hope I pronounce this first name correctly. I think it's Aero Saarinen, just to name a few. Oh, I thought... Yeah, you could see my typo yeah, there. I, I thought just, I'm like Saarinen just. I'm yeah. like, man, that's quite a last name. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of cool stuff once we get into the particular designers, you know, and mm -hmm. it's, it's nice to see. It's like, oh yeah, we've seen this furniture because a lot of it is still around. Yeah. And its influence is, is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the knockoff stuff, forget about it. I, I mean, mean, like we're looking at a chair right now. Yeah. Then that's like, you know, kind of the Eames style mm -hmm. molded plywood and Herman Miller, you know, still makes the Eames style. Yes. Uh, what, what do you call it? Was it that a office recli chair. recliner? Yeah. Well, yeah, that too. But they have like that uh, molded plywood. Oh, recliner. yeah. With the leather. Yeah. 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 Uh, and those, those, there's a ton of knockoffs. <laughs> those yellow chairs uh, at the home we were just in, those yellow plastic bucket chairs. Oh, yeah. I got the same ones, but yeah. they're uh, like a blue, bluish green. Yeah. Those, if I remember, those are based on some famous. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I can't I think remember. I call it's called Michelle the, Chair. Michelle, yeah. Shell. Shell Chair. Shell? Yeah. Yeah, so as you probably guessed, mid-century modern style originated during the middle of the 20th century, uh, hence mid-century, and embodied the needs and wants of the population that of that time. Uh, it's rooted in functionality, clean lines, and simplicity, which reflected the world at that time, designer Amanda Thompson explains. Uh, homes were more linear, focused on maintaining a nuclear family unit, and as such, the furniture design echoed this environment. Oh, yeah, I stand corrected. The shell chair is actually closer to that. Ah, yeah. That's like a combination between that, whatever that plastic chair is and a shell chair, but the shell chair was actually created by Wegner. Cool. Same guy who did the, you know, the round chair, the wishbone chair. Is it called the tulip chair by any chance? Uh, that might be right. Tulip chair. Mine's not as sharp as it used to be. No, that's no. tulip chair. Yeah, I see. That's another design that we've seen a million of. Yeah. What the hell do they call that chair? I mean, that's... That's real close. Yeah. That's like the armchair version of it. Mm-hmm. What's that white one? Like they just call it a side chair. Oh. But that's the style. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I search for bucket chair. <laughs> Plastic. Let's see side chair. I mean, when you do a search, the pictures come up. Yeah. You, know, you see them. They're maybe original. Original. There you go. Original plastic. Herman Miller, Eames, molded. Come on. Yeah. Herman Miller, Eames, molded side dining chairs. That's it. Yeah. They're still, they're still producing them. It's not. There they famous. are. I saw this Cayo. Mm -hmm. I saw a truck on the parkway yesterday, but I guess it's a furniture store. Oh, man. we <laughs> The parkway. It's like the Wild West out Don't there. Don't even say the word. Just, just made the hair on my neck go. Up. Yeah, actually, the turnpike is worse. Yeah, I don't know how people do that every day. I don't know. Now you know why they drive like madmen out there. Yeah. Oh my god. So, unlike uh, frillier pieces or those filled with ornate detailing, mid-century modern furniture is much more straightforward in nature. Um, 
The need and desire for functional, simplistic furniture and decor in our homes was a rebellion against the ornate traditions from decades before and a way for families to embrace a more modern, organic way of living, designer Eleanor Trepti comments. So the key characteristics. Most authentic mid-century modern furniture is made from teak, uh, preferred for its richness in color and durability. Uh, rosewood and oak were other commonly used woods, mostly in case pieces like tables, desks, and storage cabinets. Yeah, you see a lot of interpretations now in walnut. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This teak is ungodly expensive. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's not easy to work either. No, and there's like a big black market for it, you know? Yeah, you might as well be working with the uh, rhino skin. Yeah. Um, but wood was by no means the only material present in the creation of mid-century modern pieces, as we were just talking about. Materials were critical to mid-century design. And this is kind of where we're getting into new territory. Mm-hmm. Um Thompson notes, we saw a lot of wood, metal, glass, and vinyl often used in tension with each other to create a unique look. These materials were often used to create furnishings in curved shapes. Uh, the famous Eames chair is a hallmark of this look, Trepti shares. Um, you got a link? Yeah, that's a link. Yeah, link definitely e- uh, echoing the sort of Bauhaus... Um, Combination of materials. Come on. The Eames chair. Even if people don't know it by name, they know it by sight. Oh, yeah. Um, There it is. The iconic Eames lounge chair. Yeah. Um, You know, it's that sort of curved, shallow dish of uh, plywood. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... With some really comfy black leather upholstery. Uh, sort of a, by today's standards, uh, a relatively um, standard looking five point pedestal base. Yeah, very sort of uh, institutional looking. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it was, you know, a real statement piece. Mm-hmm. Look, the spruce. <laughs> yeah. Comes up on everything. <laughs> yeah. The spruce has been an invaluable resource for us. Yeah. Um, you could see like a, a psychiatrist or, you know, somebody sitting in this chair, right, yeah. with their notepad. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might not have their feet up, but <laughs> it's it's a gorgeous looking piece of furniture 70 years later. Yeah. That's the thing that you know, um, really cool. Like when furniture, you could see this in your house today. You want to sit in this chair. You want to have it in your, oh, you know. Yeah. It looks so comfortable. Home. I mean, that's what makes this such an iconic piece. Mm-hmm. Um, the Eames chair. Um, besides the Eames chair, other unique shakes. Shapes took hold through curved and almost round sofas, odd-shaped coffee tables, and even geometric shapes that felt angular and clean. Uh, Color was also a major component of mid-century style. Mm -hmm. You know, especially when you start getting into the plastics, right? Yeah. 
We saw the use of color in ways we didn't see before, often either as a bold accent or as a way to make a piece of furniture stand out singularly, singularly in a room. Uh, so let's uh, recap. Some of the characteristics that define the mid-century modern style are simplistic, ornate elements used sparingly, if at all, functional, abides by architect Lewis Sullivan's philosophy that form follows function. It's organic. It uses shapes found in nature that tend to lead to soft curves. Uh, geometric. Uh, utilizes basic shapes for clean lines and sleek edges. And it's diverse. It embraces a large range of materials and colors. So... Most of us were familiar to some degree with mid-century modern, um, but it still deserves some, you know, delving into. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with, so let's look at mid-century modern versus modern industrial. Um, and both styles exploded onto the interior design scene after World War II. And modern in both names and their popularity in today's market, there are some definite similarities, uh, but there's also a few key differences. Let's note those. Um, Mid-century modern, clean, finished edges, uniform finish, uh, you know, the colors which we went over, some of them bold. Uh, a lot of those primary colors used, you know. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, it's elegant. There aren't imperfections and things like that. Not overly ornate. And modern industrial. Um, the, one word, loft. <laughs> the classic loft. This embraces material in their rough, unfinished form. Uh, and it often uses neutral tones, monotone color schemes. It's an edgier style. Uh, that welcomes natural characteristics like live edges and burls and in, embellishes with contrasting material. So um, as sort of unnatural uh, as it sounds, the live edge table is kind of part of the modern industrial uh, palette. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially when you start adding... Um, you know, maybe like a metal base to it and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the contrasting material. Even just like a monolithic wood base, mm -hmm. you know, although yeah. it's a natural, no, no I, well, metal's natural too, but it's a <clears throat> natural material. It still has that sort of industrial look. Yes, yes. They they embrace all the, the blemishes and all those things. Mm-hmm. Industrial design, again, Scandinavia um, was really influential. And um, th this is an interesting um, phrase. It was a style characterized by simplicity and democratic design hmm. and natural shapes. I think we, we've heard that before. Yeah. So at its core, the industrial style relies on incorporating building materials into the room. Exposed rafters, which <laughs> we, we just mocked up. Yeah. It's funny how all these things are, you know, just separated by a few degrees, right? Yeah. 
reclaimed wood, iron, brick, concrete. They're all staples of the industrial design style and spaces with an open floor plan like factories, that, like the factories they were inspired by. Mm -hmm. the, all this is not part of mid-century modern design. I mean, the two could live happily together. Right. They're in the same vein for sure. Right, right. So you want to talk a little bit about plastic? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> we are woodworkers, um, but... Plastic was such an important part of uh, mid-century modern and and modern design in general. Um, when do you think plastic was uh, commercially invented? Um, well, I see the date there, but if I had to guess, I, I wouldn't have guessed this early. I probably would have said like the late 30s, maybe. Me too. Me too. Um, but according uh, to these, uh, I'm sure, very accurate notes of mine, Having first been commercially invented in 1907, the 20th century saw the start of a huge demand for plastic, though we were at the time unfortunately unaware of the devastating impact this demand would have on our fragile environment. Oh, yeah. Sorry for that aside. I just couldn't help myself. Plastic is everywhere. <laughs> Who knew? The plastic was part of the economic boom and it coincided with the start of a generation who rejected their parents' traditional views and fashions. The need and desire for inexpensive materials reflected the baby boomers' call for freedom and plastic furniture, accessories, lighting, electronics, dinnerware, and even clothing was produced in millions. Okay, boomer. Yeah, um... I tell you, it's really funny to look at some of this stuff in hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I think 60s, you know, with all that plastics and um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I was born in 62, so I wasn't really, you know, old enough to see it firsthand, but mm -hmm. it was near enough where I could recall like the fashions mm -hmm. like um women wearing these like um it's like plastic coats and stuff like oh, that yeah. you know with that yep. belt mm -hmm. yeah i mean that stuff sticks around yeah you know it's in the forefront it was in the forefront then but on the fringes of society it, it always sticks around right for longer and um Another thing I should have looked up, I don't know if I made note of it, was Bakelite. Have you ever heard of Bakelite? Oh, yeah. Like the stuff they make the telephone, or they, <laughs> they make the telephone, the stuff they used to make phones. <laughs> I think that was like a product of NASA, wasn't it? Like, I think so. Or like research for it. <clears throat> that, that's funny, the stuff, you know, I put it in the, into current, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's like uh, maybe I'm thinking of corning ware because I know that was like, I mean, tons of stuff was, uh, you know, the result of uh, the space program. Oh, yeah. Um, so the history of plastic design and the tour of the Atom Design Museum tour the museum's page here history of the plastic chair, <laughs> the paradox of the Great Depression. Um, Let's see. You want to click on the history of the plastic chair? Is that a link? 
Oh, yeah, well. It's like a... Like Lexan almost, yeah, right? Yeah, or like, I was going to say Lucite. Luce, oh, Lucite was another big material. Those are pretty funky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you could see how they still kind of 65 ABS. Yeah. Injection molding. Polyester. Those are cool. Yeah. Oh, I see. This is, has a timeline on it. That's that's pretty neat. Yeah, I don't like that. Kind of looks like the chair like they put in schools. Polypropylene. Yeah. Polycarbonate. By the 80s, Those are funky. yeah, they're starting to get into something a little bit uh, more recognizable. If you're interested in Nordic plastic chairs and tables, please be free to contact me. Flowchair.com. Yeah, it's it's a pretty cool website, Flowchair. Yeah. I wonder, do they sell chairs? Or they just want to, they just, they're inviting people to chat about plastic chairs. Yeah, plastic... Kareem Rashid said, I've always loved plastic and I'll always love plastic chairs. Plastic has the characteristics of warmth, softness, plasticity, flexibility, and comfort, and lightness, which endows design and infinite possibilities. Well, that's a unique take. I mean... Warmth, eh? Yeah, we would usually characterize wood as having those characteristics. Yeah. Um, Maybe not plasticity, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but definitely the warmth and comfort. Um, I mean, of course, plastic has plasticity. Yeah. It's, uh, by definition, it does. All right. So the history of, the pla of plastic design, uh, we, we backtrack a little into the 30s, um, and consumption has stopped in major developed countries because of the Depression. Mm -hmm. um, the famous American designer Raymond Lowy wrote that, Ugliness does not sell. <laughs> there have been some great quotes along the way yeah. where people have been outspoken. I would have loved to have these guys commenting on Twitter and um, whatchamacallit, uh, Instagram yeah. today. Because everybody's kind of plays it safe, don't mm -hmm. they? Yeah, for the most part. <clears throat> there are not, I, I find... Too many people willing to risk their followers, you know, or their follower count by alienating people and saying something, you know, yeah. you know, whether it's true or not. So in order to boost sales and therefore the economy, he proposed to give an aesthetic value to manufactured objects. And so modern design was born. That's cool. So instead of just any any old thing, you know, being, um, you know, what well, let's say a can opener, right? You know, he wanted to put flair and um, what was that word? Flounce. <laughs> Flounce. <laughs> yeah. What do they call that that type of stuff? Like uh, that design sector of yeah, just like I, home I, it, home kind of goods. It's pretty cool. I mean, I was watching a show on. Um, it was on, like, Sundays at, at some, like, really vacant time slot where mm -hmm. they were doing this sort of, like, I don't know, industrial design isn't 
it. It's yeah. there's another word. There's another phrase for it where they, yeah. you know, it's product design. Mm -hmm. Where um, not pra practical. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, where yeah, you take things like can openers and um, you know salad spinners and add some panache to them. Yeah, what do they call that? Yeah, see what you can find there on the wizard. Um, and plastics, you know, opened up a huge uh, amount of possibility. Mm -hmm. So manufacturers were quick to capitalize on the use of plastics because it not only helped to increase their margins, uh, they could create beautiful modern objects. The, the first objects made from plastics were electrical devices that took full advantage of the polymer's insulating properties. Issues of safety were quickly brought up. <laughs> but Because everything was probably iron back oh, then. Yeah. <laughs> but changes in molding techniques now made it possible to give any shape to these objects in order to differentiate them from the competition. And in the 50s, Plastics become a boon to interior decoration. Western Europe was busy rebuilding thanks to large, to large contribution in dollars. People wanted to forget the years of sacrifices during the war. And this was the heyday of the American dream. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you even saw that in, like, uh, I saw a thing. They were talking about it, and, and this guy was in Britain. The foods that came about in the 50s, these really strange sort of, uh, you know, maybe lavish isn't the right word, but, you know, all those weird jelly kind of things <laughs> and, you know, they were so deprived of anything yeah. interesting during the, the years of World War II that, and people didn't really know how to cook anymore, mm -hmm. you know, cook anything like weird anymore. So they, you know, if you look at the cookbooks from that time. That's part of the reason you see all these weird sort of things. Yeah. Um, now, we while we were having this post-war boom, we don't really know firsthand the devastation that Western Europe, for the most part, oh, yeah. endured. I mean, cities, well, I mean, especially on the continent, cities were leveled. Oh, yeah. And even in Britain, um, I mean, the, like... In well into the 60s, there were entire neighborhoods that were still just rubble. Yeah. Um, and uh, makes me think of like Pink Floyd. Um, like, I can't remember which album, which songs. Um, I think it might even be in The Wall, um, where there's a like, you know, how they have like that storybook format in yeah, that album. Yeah where they're talking about, you know, growing up as kids mm -hmm. and there's still the rubble of World War II. Yeah. Um, we were insulated from that here. Insulated from most things here. <laughs> you, you speak the truth, my friend. Much as people like to complain. So, um, so, you know, um, I guess this is a, a time where, you know, America is really taking the lead in design, mm -hmm. um, even though it's 
it's drawing influences from European countries and from Asian, African countries. Um, I, I think this is the first time we're going to see, like, America... Um, on the forefront. Right. American designers really... Uh, um, Setting a trend. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Uh, the U.S. played a key role in creating this new colorful style with smooth curves. Again, we're, we're kind of concentrating on plastic at the moment mm -hmm. um, that appeared in significant objects. Um, the 50s were marked by revolutions of style and shape and furniture design and decoration, but also and especially by the new industrial techniques that allowed plastics to take over. Yeah, and, you know, like you were just saying, we had an advantage because we were insulated from the devastation of World War II. Our industry wasn't affected. It was actually helped because you had the war boom. Mm -hmm. have all these factories, all these new things being developed for the war effort, and, you know, we were able to reap the, reap the, uh, the benefits you know, Europe was trying to rebuild, whereas we were, we basically kickstarted yeah. an industrial boom and probably part of what led to the U.S. becoming a superpower. You're exactly right. I mean, they had to physically rebuild from the mm -hmm. dirt up. And, you know, there was also a brain drain. Yeah. You know, from the continent because all of, not all of, but many of the best and brightest came here, were, you know, siphoned away with, great job opportunities and people sort of wanting to, you know, anybody who had the means to, you know, could look over across the ocean and say, come on, let's, let's just go over there and forget yeah. this devastation. Um, so yeah, you, you're never far away from, uh, real world events, mm -hmm. even as something that you might consider as frivolous as design and furniture design, it's all wrapped up in the goings on of, uh, you know, life. Mm -hmm. uh, this era in the fifties also saw the advent of industrialization and the mass production of furniture. Uh, we talked about it before, but the um, furniture was not produced on the scale we are about to see in the 50s mm -hmm. where, you know, especially when it comes to, um, you know, plastics. These things were cranked out. Oh, yeah. Uh, the star of the plastic show was Melamine, better known by its trade name of Formica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Formicas. Mica, as we der derisively call yeah. it. It was considered the apex of modernity and was mostly used in kitchens and bathrooms. Oh, yeah. Um, did you grow up with a, a Formica kitchen table? Uh, I don't think the table was, but the counters definitely were. Yeah, yeah. Now, me, a kid of the 70s, um, we had, of course, Formica countertops throughout. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up um, with my grandma, um, we also had uh, those, those uh, they'd be considered so 
kitschy chic nowadays. <laughs> that Formica kitchen table with the metal, the ribbed metal banding oh, around yeah. the sides. Yep. With the with the vinyl poofy cushion mm-hmm. and the metal tubing oh, yeah. around the seats. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the kitchen set I grew up with. Um Yeah, you fetch a pretty penny for that these days. <laughs> you could, could you could only imagine the fighting uh, if that went up for auction. Oh yeah. <laughs> And the seats were red of all colors. Uh, that's what I had envisioned. <laughs> white for Micah? The yes. Table, yeah. the, the tabletop was white, but it had like, you know, those little gold like specks in it. Like, oh, like yeah, yeah, You yeah. know. Oh, man. So what were the reasons behind its success for Micah Melamine? It's bright colors. It's resistance to heat. Now, you know, we know that you can't put a hot pot on it. Chemical and light, and especially the ease with which it could be cleaned. Yeah, those hard surfaces. Plastics were in fashion. Designers like Charles and Ray Eames, an American couple, created the famous plastic chair at the beginning of the decade. Mm-hmm. An iconic chair whose seat and back were made of a single piece of fiberglass. Or ABS, depending on the manufacturer. It must be the one that we uh, were just talking about. Yeah, yeah. The chair could be modulated through the addition of armrests, and which, most importantly, came in a range of unique colors for the time. Um, another yeah, you big... can get them on Amazon for twenty nine ninety nine. Oh, man, I know. I mean, that's where mine came from. Another big name was Arne Jacobson, uh, a Danish designer who dared to design a chair with a fiberglass structure filled with polyurethane foam and leather for comfort for a prestigious hotel chain. So where are we on time? Are we uh, going to continue on with the 60s and 70s with pop plastics? Uh, well, let's see. What, I mean, this is page 6 of 28, so... <laughs> Should be, uh, what's that, seven seven pages for each. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to go, yeah, we'll s- go all the way to plywood. All right, yeah, we'll open with plywood. Yeah. Um, so in the 60s and 70s, um, a new society emerged uh, between uh, dissent and utopia, <laughs> and with it, pop culture. So How are we still on that precipice? This this is another amazing thing. I mean, we went through some things that were like 200 years ago where we could easily interpret it as current times. Yeah. You know, 60s and 70s, it was really um, uh, a dramatic time here in the U.S. Um, and it was a lot of tension and... Maybe it's just perpetual. Yeah, yeah, maybe it is. Uh, it, You know what's funny, though? Uh, it makes me think of um, the Who song, Won't Get Fooled Again. Yeah. The, the To me, the iconic line in that song is, meet the new boss, same, same as, as the, the old, old boss. boss. Because all the people that were engaged in this dissent and, you know, fighting for utopia... Are the people hanging on to, you know, what we got now that's really kind of wrong with everything with a death grip? Yeah. 
Funny how uh, perspectives change. Yeah, right? Um, and, you know, people my age that are looking to sort of allow that there's, you know, something wrong. <laughs> We're few and far between yeah. and usually derided <laughs> by people of our own age group. Traitor. <laughs> right. <laughs> so anyway... The pop culture, um, these the 60s and 70s were decades of daring and beauty for all. Young people call for more modular, brighter, more democratic housing, simply to live differently than before. And designers were ecstatic. Everything was allowed. Everything was possible. They took full advantage of the new opportunities, often by injection-molded plastics. Uh, this is pretty cool. I mean, to think about, you know, being able to dream up something, you know, and the yeah. shapes and stuff like that and take advantage of it. Yeah. I mean, it made things possible that were, you know, not possible before right, at, at right. all. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't carve one of those plastic chairs out of wood. It, no. would, it would never, it would fall apart. Right. Right. Um, I wish I had a link here. What better illustration of this could there have been? Then the polypropylene tam-tam stool created by Frenchman Henry Massonet. Um, oh, yeah. That's exactly what I expected it to look like. And we've seen those. Yeah. We, um, we, uh, where we put the glass in. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, because the guy came to fix it. Yes. Yep. We've, we've seen Ooh, look this. Look at those. Wow. Those are cool. Ergo, ergo. So, um... Now, here's a Frenchman. That's like, that's got to be African influence. That's yes, like a drum. it looks like the, the Udu drum. Is that what it's called? I think so. Yeah. It looks just like an African drum, and it's like a solid piece of plastic mm -hmm. that you, is a stool, or could be even an end table. Got like that lacquer look finish. Mm -hmm. And um, I guarantee you that this Frenchman was working in the U.S. at the time. I guess I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's the 60s by now. There's he's, He may have been in France, but... He was probably in some imperialized uh, area of Africa at some point. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the French were... Uh, they were big and where, like uh, the Congo. Yes, you know, um, I think the Ivory Coast. Mm -hmm. um, so, it... it it's it's all connected. We're, this is the, another thing, you know, that it's nice to learn and accept and embrace. We're, we're all connected. Yeah. And um, even through things as, you know, innocuous as design, you know, it's still, it's still important to understand that. So in the late 60s, when it was first commercialized, the Tam Tam stool... Sold at a price of 1.5 euros. The price of two movie tickets at the time. Jeez, it's 500 bucks now. If you're oh curious. my God. Did, is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, let's see if uh, who that's from. Wow. Um, for those listening, a, a quick Google search of Tam Tam Stool. T-A-M, T-A-M. Um, 445, 350, Three hundred twenty-five euros. Three hundred twenty-five euros. So yeah. at the top end, 
it, it would be a $50 piece of furniture, you know, at the top end of, you know. That's crazy. Oh, man. So now you can start seeing where we're, we're you know, mentioning things like democratic design. Colin, this is Tam Tam also. I don't know hmm. uh, which is, this is vintage Tam Tam store. Oh. But it's still following that same sort of... Right, the drum Oh, here shape. we go. Tam Tam Stools by Henry Massonet. Set of five. Yeah. It's still an African drum shape. Yeah. Um, that's cool. That's that's the thing to take from it. Use $3,000. <laughs> oh, my God. It is five of them. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's pretty cool. Uh, Werner Panton, a Danish designer, achieved global success by creating the first brightly colored chair made from a single piece of molded plastic. Hmm. Uh, at the time, he said, thanks to technical advances and the new plastic materials, designers can now create objects which hitherto could only have existed in their dreams. Yeah, we kind of just said that. Yeah. Early models of his chair were made from fiberglass-reinforced polyester. Um, but since the 80s, it is the polyurethane foam molding process which is used. Uh, current plastics technologies, however, have evolved so much that the Pantin chair can also be produced through a process of injection using fully recyclable polypropylene. It's in that ocean plastic in there. Yeah, um... You kind of, you know, squashed my dream when you <laughs> told me how much their stuff really gets recycled. Yeah. I wanted to live in my little dream bubble that all our recycling was going into this stuff. Uh, Piero Gatti and Cesare Paolino and Franco Teodoro were three Italian designers who rocked the world by armchairs of armchairs. They rocked the world of armchairs by creating the Sacco, um, the world's most famous poof. Hmm. And I think the Sacco is the beanbag chair. Uh. Um, in those years marked by hippies and unconventionality, yeah. If you've ever gone offshore on a boat, it looks like uh, one of the beanbags that you would sit on. Yeah. Like not like a beanbag chair that, you know, like that you think of when you mm -hmm. think of a beanbag chair, but it has like sort of that backrest. Right. Right. These it's, they're very comfortable. Yeah. Way more comfortable than a beanbag. A beanbag kills your back and your neck because there's you got no right. support. It's a beanbag with a back. Mm -hmm. Um um they primar primarily wanted to break the sleek and pure lines of contemporary furniture and create the most perfectly comfortable armchair. Taking their inspiration from the straw-filled mattresses used in the countryside, they strove to design an armchair made from a transparent envelope filled with an inert material that would mold itself to the body, regardless of its position. After various tests, they created a, quote, non-seat. Hmm. After filling it with water, which <laughs> made it too heavy... <laughs> this sounds like us, right? Yeah. Like we'd be trying crazy like, stuff. Uh, yeah, no, it's going to work. <laughs> then small ping pong balls. They finally opted for a dozen million polystyrene beads 
which total weight did not exceed three and a half kilograms. Wow. The pear-shaped envelope, when sat upon, allowed the beads to spread to the upper part of the seat, which could then be used as a backrest and headrest. The SACO, that's S-A-C-C-O, could also be used as a poof. Uh, I didn't know that was a real term. Yeah. Uh, And even as a sort of lounge chair, the prototype's clear PVC envelope did not, not being particularly strong, the Zanota company that sold it covered it in leather or telefita, a PVC-coated fabric available in 10 bright colors. Huh. Uh, I'd be interested to see the uh, original, like the clear one. Yeah. Clear it's PVC envelope. Clear. Sucko. So uh, they covered it in leather, a PVC-coated fabric, and it was available in 10 colors. A fad that became the symbol of a generation in search of a new, free, and nomadic life, the Sako immediately became a bestseller. That's a great place to leave it. Yeah. No, no, uh, no such luck. No. Wow. Maybe that's like an original advertise advertisement. Yeah. So it is kind of shaped like a pear. Yeah. Sako, the most everything chair. What began as an ergonomic experiment with a play on what ultimately became a beanbag chair, the creation of the Sacco chair by Piero Gatti, Cesare Paolini, and Franco Teodoro was a runaway hit. When introduced to Aurelio Zanotta, founder of the famed Italian brand Zanotta, the interest <laughs> turned into excitement upon production of this quirky polystyrene ball-filled lounger. That's cool. Yeah. The shape looks great, doesn't it? Part of the New York MoMA collection since 1972. Wow. Wow. Look at that ad. Oh, man. Well, I don't know if it was an ad, but... Yeah. Hmm. That's cool. That was pretty neat. Emilio uh, Ambats, the former curator of the design department at uh, New York's MoMA, said, even today, I find it amazing to think that a producer could have had the perception and courage to promote and introduce such an object to the market. Pretty cool. Most most informal, most versatile, most irreverent, most freeing, most soft, most ergonomic, and most everything chair. There is no defined shape. It is for this very reason that it has survived, untouched by time, through seasons, fashions, and every ism imaginable, preserving the greatest value of all, being a concept that well beyond the seasons. And... You can still buy them and afford them. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That was great. I forgot all about that. The Sacco. Yeah. I guess that means sack. Yeah. You know, my Italian is totally diminished. (laughs) (laughs) All I know Sacco is from Sacco and Vanzetti. Did you ever study that in school? I don't think so. It was in the 20s, and I think it was up in Boston, and they were these two anarchists, Mm. and they were uh, tried on these trumped-up charges. (laughs) I know all this stuff about it. That's what started the macaroni riots. Yeah, I, I think they were. I think they were hanged, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty serious. Jeez. <laughs> well, on that bright note, 
<laughs> Go out and check out the Sacco. Yeah, S-A-C-C-O. Yeah. Um, all right, so, yeah, we'll see you next week. We're going to get into the uh, the origins of plywood and, I guess, you know, how, they, how it was used in mid-century design. Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks for tuning in. See you next week. All right, boys and girls. As always, Rob and I thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. If you want to help support the podcast, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our Patreon, or you can use one of our affiliate links in the podcast description for vesting finishes or Myoderm CBD pain relief cream. Um, again, we appreciate your support. Thanks for tuning in. 